Welcome to Tampa Tantrum, The Lost Files. Back in the summer of 2012, myself, Stephen Layton and Colin Harmon hosted a group of 12 coffee luminaries to come present on a coffee topic of their choice at the SCAE World of Coffee event in Vienna. This was not the first time we'd put on such an event, but it was the first time we didn't have control of the AV crew for the production. The previous two events, we'd collated sets of videos which can be viewed at tampatantrum.com. But in Vienna, something went horribly wrong with the video quality we had. Although something gets lost without the visuals, I decided that instead of them being lost forever, I would make them available in audio format. This is the fifth in the series, and please give it up for the 2010 World Barista Champion, Mr. Michael Phillips. Okay, so I guess I guess I just get into this here. Um, welcome everybody, thanks for showing up for this. This is gonna be fun and exciting, hopefully. Uh, oh, you're a nice man. So, it's a really interesting time in specialty coffee right now. There's a lot of advances, everything's moving forward at a, a raging clip, um, and I think one of the really exciting things, at least, that I have some experience with is uh, more than ever, we have coffee bars across the world that are trying to be better than they've ever been before. They're searching out new roasters, they're investing in better equipment, and hopefully they're also realizing that the success of all this is going to tie into their staff. Uh, so what I'm looking to talk about a little bit today is the ideas of education, the concepts about it, and what we're actually doing. Because the more that I, I encounter these different shops, the more I realize that the conversation that we seem to be having is focusing on what we're teaching, not necessarily how we're teaching it. Uh, and I think that's extremely relevant. Um, there's a lot of people that naturally, when you start setting up a program like this, if you don't have uh, a lot of resources for it, you're going to default to those traditional models of education that we've all kind of gone through school with. And the more that I've looked into implementing my own and trying to find out how to get the best results. I'm finding that traditional models of education just aren't as successful as we want or as we need them to be for our particular ap applications. So Colin was foolish enough to give me 20 minutes and a microphone. So we're going we're gonna to talk about a couple ideas that have been on my mind regarding this stuff. Um, so if we're, if we're talking about education and training staff, uh, I guess the first question is what do we want to teach people? Uh, no matter how highbrow or how lowbrow the coffee bar is, you could argue that everybody wants their staff to have mastery over three areas in particular. Uh, we're looking for staff to be technically proficient, to have a well-developed palate, and to also be very good at service. Uh, now, you could argue that one of these is more important than the other, but I, I would say that for a really well-developed, rounded staff that's truly executing in the way that we need them to in specialty coffee now, you want to have all three of these areas addressed somewhat equally. Um, so if we're going to walk through those, let's look at technique. Technique is, in my opinion, one of the most easiest, uh, but oddly enough, it's, it's the one that we pretty much solely focus on with regards to training. Uh, you have two real big things there. You have muscle memory and essentially standards. So practicing and developing the ability to do these articulate, dexterous activities, and then uh, actually knowing the exact standards that you need to replicate. So do A, do B, do C, do it fast, do it clean. That's technique. Uh, granted, some people will be much better at it, some will be a little bit worse, but overall it's a fairly black and white area of education. It's something that we can approach in a, a little bit more traditional manner. Uh, then you have palate. Palate gets a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, when we talk about palate, we're dealing with all of the baggage people bring with it. So, you know, when I taste this, I think of this, so on and so forth. There's some natural range in abilities. You have some super tasters. You have some people that couldn't taste their way out of a wet paper bag. But in general, people can usually universally identify around a few specific things. I mean, we can all get some sense of sweet, some sense of body, some sense of finish. Uh, the main task with palate is calibration. You know, it's tasting coffees together, it's working on a common language. Uh, it's the sort of thing that I think is it's not super difficult, it just takes thinking a little bit more outside the box. Uh, service, service is the one that gets a little bit trickier. Um, service might as well not even take place in a coffee bar as it's more akin to a 400 level psychology class. You're dealing with things like intuition, you're dealing with empathy, you're dealing with trying to get people to understand a customer base that is very unfamiliar with what we're doing. And a lot of coffee shops nowadays have this bad habit of producing essentially overly clinical doctors with no bedside manner. Um, we, 
We just haven't focused on incorporating that to our training programs. Now, I'm not going to do the hospitality rehash. Uh, James, Colin, Rasmus, these guys have all really hammered in on this. And if you haven't seen their temper tantrum, go take a look. But it's absolutely something that should be addressed in a, a well-rounded training program. Um, out of all the training programs I've been in, though, technique seems to be the heavy hand. You know, Everybody starts with that, and typically they end with that. Maybe there's a little bit of palate, uh, not a whole lot of service. So one of the things that you want to think about when you're setting it up is definitely finding a way to incorporate that as difficult as it may be. Um, another idea about training is uh, the, the speed or the pace of it. It's very, it's very easy for us to uh, try and rush people through this, but when we take a step back and we actually look at the role of the barista, we're asking for a ridiculously high learning curve for a disparagingly low rate of pay. Uh, we want people to develop these very unique physical techniques and abilities that have no application in everyday life. Uh, we want them to learn how to articulately taste a product that they typically don't encounter outside of their own coffee bar, and we want them to do it with a, a big grin and smile and make people feel comfortable. Um, but it's, it's difficult to get people to a level of mastery in that in a, a short matter of time. That sort of thing takes a lot of long-term development. Um, and as such, you know, in a lot of coffee bars, we have rotation where staff can last maybe a year, maybe two years. So we're not going to get there with those traditional methods. When you're building a program, you really need to think about pace. Uh, we as trainers and shop owners need to figure out how to push our staff faster and further uh, in a much shorter amount of time. One of the ways to do that is to start off with a very well-developed structure. So depending on what you're trying to do, <coughs> whether you're a small shop that just has one document and one trainer that gets to spend a little time with, or a larger organization that has reams of training documents, a ton of educators, and the ability to really push staff, uh, having a path that someone can see from the second they start uh, is a very valuable thing. It gives people goals to work towards, and it keeps us from being an ambiguous, somewhat tiring process. Um, when you do set it up, uh, a really good thing to try and start off with is you want to have three areas, in my opinion. You want to identify the areas of knowledge that you want to cover. You want to come up with the resources that will support those. And then you want to have the expectations of what people need to achieve to be considered proficient in that. Uh, that goes along with that whole establishing a path. But if you do, say you have multiple areas set up. You want people to learn brewing. You want them to learn espresso. You want them to learn milk. Uh, most of the training programs I've been through or had a hand in We'll usually take something like this, and it'll be a straight line. You know, you'll do this, and you'll do this, and you'll do this. You don't get to do this until you've done this. Um, I, I highly recommend against that. Uh, a nonlinear program is going to be much more advantageous to both the staff and to the shop. You know, if you have a, a staff member who's really good at B, uh, who's really interested in C, but really can't figure out A for the life of them, if you make him start at A, and then progress on through, you're ultimately going to limit the potential of that person and oftentimes discourage them. Uh, so coming up with a program that identifies people's strengths and allows them to run with those is a, a good technique. Um, being dogmatic about the approach and forcing people to go in this straight line is, is counterproductive. Uh, it's easy for a training program to lose sight uh, of what it, it's really there for, which is to promote fast, efficient learning of staff so that we can be executing great drinks in the shop. Uh, so when we do have this knowledge and we do have people pushing through, um, there's, there's the subject of you know, how, do you, how do you analyze that? How do you gauge effectiveness? Who, who here is a, a fan of standardized testing? No one. That's amazing. How many people have been through a training program that has it? We got one, two. How many people have been through a training program, just for curiosity's sake? The same number? Similar? A few more? Um, well, if you do go through one, or if you're generating one, standardized testing is, is kind of a bad idea. Uh, but at the same time, it's what most of us use. You know, you have a test, you know, you read this, you take this test. If you pass a test, that means you're good. Um, more and more research about education nowadays is showing that Standardized tests are not a really accurate or relevant way to gauge someone's actual abilities. Uh, there's people out there that I've worked with that are amazing test takers, but just you don't want them on your bar. And there's other people that couldn't pass the test for the life of them, but I would hire that person every day of the week. Um, 
the problem that comes in here is when you're trying to develop a program, there's not an easy replacement for testing for staff. Uh, the only real successful measure that I've found is direct observation of activities and learning, learning opportunities. You, you literally have to put in that time uh, with each individual to be able to truly evaluate it. There's not a, a hands-off approach where you can give them something and then come back with an answer that will realistically tell you what they're capable of. Uh, real honest training takes a lot of personal investment. Um, one of the things that I would recommend spending time on as opposed to testing is generating better content. Uh, generating really solid content is a way to create engagement and develop uh, an interest in people. Uh, and this, this next statement may, may run contrary to what people would hope for me, but I am uh, I'm a huge advocate of thievery uh, when it comes to great ideas. There's a, a very common trend in our industry to have this, well, he thought of that, that's their thing, or she thought of that, that's her thing. Um, we need to start stealing from each other like we're kleptomaniacs. We've got to find those good ideas that this person's using in their bar for how they have their menu set up, or how she has her bar flow set up, or how that person runs a tasting, and incorporate them into our own activities. Uh, the more that we try and reinvent the wheel with each and every single thing we do, the more it's going to slow down the ultimate opportunities for everybody in our coffee bars. Um, and hopefully, you know, the better you get at it, the more you come up with things someone can steal from you someday, and it'll be a big circle of life, and we'll all, we'll all contribute to it. Um, a lot of educational systems that I've encountered out there are typically centered around the concept of you have a center of knowledge. You know, you have this person, they're the trainers, you have this person, they're the staff. You know, they bestow knowledge upon these people and eventually, hopefully, one of them grows up, knocks that person off in a sword fight or something, and then they get to be that person and then everyone else learns from them and the cycle continues. Um, and, you know, if it's, it's better than nothing, but ultimately in, in my, my dream cafe, you have a sort of a culture of accountability where training is something that everybody's invested in. The more you take that responsibility for the education of staff and you start to spread it around to other people, the more you develop a system that allows everyone to feel accountable so that if this person's not performing, it's not just that one person's fault who's only able to work with them once or twice a week, it's everybody's fault. Everybody needs to chip in, everybody needs to work towards that person. Um, the other really amazing side benefit of that is I, uh, I was sort of pushed into training well before I knew anything about training, and I think that's the case with most trainers out there. Um, but that was absolutely wonderful for me because the act of training, when you take a task that you know very well, you do it every single day, and you're forced to break it down, you're forced to analyze what exactly you're doing when you level or when you tamp or when you pull a shot, that time spent on analysis of that and explaining it to someone else gives you a level of understanding that's far greater than you ever would have had if you just simply executed that day after day on bar. So creating a, a culture of training throughout the entire staff uh, is also a better way to significantly improve those people that are doing the training themselves. Um, one of the, the best things about training programs is also the worst thing about training programs. And that's the fact that they end. Uh, if you have a program set up where you can see start to finish, once you get through that, you're done. Um, I've been in situations where you have these excited new staff members, they get involved, they work really hard, they progress all the way through, and then they get to the end and they're, they're done. You know, their future is just working bar until they find a real job that can manage to engage them. Um, that's not the way it has to be. Uh, granted, every training program <coughs> should have some realistic finish to it. But we as shop owners and as trainers need to find a way to keep people invested. People aren't getting into coffee because it's the most lucrative thing on earth. You know, they're getting into it because they're engaged with it. They want to have this feeling of growth and progressing and mastery of a craft. And if that ever ends, then to some extent, so does that flame and interest. So coming up with ideas for your staff, like, you can look to companies like Google. Google has this great idea called 20% time, where they take their staff and they give them essentially one day a week to work on something that has nothing at all to do with their job description. Uh, and that's where they've derived a healthy amount of their amazing new innovations from, is the ideas these people come up with. Uh, now, granted, none of us can 
really afford to give each one of our staff members a Friday to just come in and screw around. But if you do it more focused and people that have progressed to this higher end stage, you say, all right, you know, one day a month, work on setting up a tasting for the staff or maybe go spend time with a roaster or, you know, start working on setting up a, a trip to origin or practicing for a competition or joining a guild. There's thousands of different ways you can find to give people continuing opportunities to stay interested and invested. And that's your best bet for retaining those long-term staff members. Um, one of, so like when it, when it comes to how exactly to, to push forward with training, uh, there's, there's a gentleman by the name of Danny Myers. He's, a, Danny Meyer. he's a, an amazing person in the world of hospitality and uh, he's generated tons of staff that are incredibly talented. And one of the mottos that he lives by is the idea of constant and gentle pressure. Uh, and it's something that I try to employ as well. So if you take those three, those three things, uh, if you lose any one of them, your, your training is gonna be less effective. So say you have constant pressure. You develop staff that will burn out. You push them too hard, too fast. Uh, if you have gentle pressure, but it, it's not constant, you develop an inconsistency. People don't have that reassurance all the way through. Uh, and if you're constantly gentle, you'll simply not get results. You know, you, you need to push at least a little bit. But the combination of the three of these represent uh, a really solid long-term view uh, for the development of your staff. And it's, it's a, a good manner to really pull folks in. Um, this idea that I'm about to talk about, this is something that uh, James, James Hoffman pointed me towards a couple years back, and I've, I keep coming back to it because it's a very, very interesting topic. Um, but it's, it, it goes to the question of how effective are we? You know, how effective are these training programs? What are we actually getting out of it? Where is it taking our staff? And the idea relates to this thing called the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition. So this is kind of a social study about learning. And what they did is they broke down, they broke down the stages of learning into to five different areas. You have uh, novice, advanced beginner, competent, proficient, and expert. So you know when people are in that beginner stage of learning, then uh, they have this rigid adherence to rules. You know this is the rule. You do this every time. They move on to advanced beginner. Then they get to the point where these rules can become conditional. So it's you do this, but if this happens, yeah, maybe do something different. Um, competent, you actually start organizing those rules by relevance, a little bit of a hierarchy. When you get to proficient, then you start recognizing the patterns that tell you what to do and the rules that tell you how to do it. Uh, when you get to expert, you're essentially, you know, you're, you're one with a matrix. You, you don't really follow rules anymore, you just use, <laughs> use intuition to, uh, to guide yourself and to assume what you need to do in those situations. I would argue that uh, your average training program might get people up to advanced beginner. If it's really good, you're going to take people up to being competent. Um, it's extremely difficult to have a training program that you can push someone through that's going to get them all the way up to that last stage. That doesn't just come by walking through these, these steps one by one. Um, this brings me to my, uh, my one and only slide. I should have had more, I'm sorry. I was really bad at preparing. Yes, all right, it worked. Uh, this is a really, this is a great quote. Uh, an expert is a man who has made all the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field. And that's, that's essentially what we're trying to do with training. We're trying to get people to be an expert, but we need to realize that, that this, is, this is part of it. Um, we can't expect overnight perfection to come simply out of training. This is a long-term investment. Any of you who've, uh, who are Malcolm Gladwell fans out there, you know, you've heard that idea of 10,000 hours is, is the minimum time that it takes to get there. Uh, we have to look at really investing in our staff and creating a community that cultivates growth of everybody all together if we really want to find a way to push our staff to that next level. Um, and hopefully in the next few years, we start coming up with a, a couple programs that can do it. I look forward to seeing them. Thank you. I, I have to stay up here, don't I? I just need to. Oh, man. Okay. Any, any seat at all? Do I get to sit next to you or do I get to sit further away? 
Dip, 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 dip. Uh, there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Phillips. I'm not texting people, I'm just looking at my notes, okay? It's not as uh -huh. I'm kind of just... Um, that was excellent, thank you very much for doing that. Um, where do we start? Oh, man. How, how, how involved are you with actual training at, at Handsome? Um, well, this is the, the really interesting thing about this talk up here, is that it's a, it's a pretty new coffee bar. Um, and when I started off, we, we really wanted to rewrite everything that we we're doing from the histories that we've had. So uh, a lot of what I've talked about here is, is, is vaguely hypocritical at the moment. <laughs> My staff is rolling their eyes, but I am, I am the primary trainer uh, at, at Handsome. But we're slowly starting to develop that culture and bring other staff members in as well. Uh, I was particularly interested in um, what you were saying about uh, non-linear training. Yes. Um, and so you were saying that basically the wrong way to, or not, the way you disagree with doing it is to, um, is to do one thing at a time. Yeah. And I think that it, what definitely resonated for most, I mean, in terms of like, it's great to have an ideology, of, uh, like a, an ideal of what you want to achieve. But then when people start coming through the door and then there's shots to be pulled and dishes to be washed and milk to be steamed and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, how difficult is it to do all of that at the same time? To do all of that on bar, or to do all of that in a yeah, training so program. In terms of like yeah. implementing, getting somebody from scratch, yeah, and then getting up to that level where you're comfortable leaving them there to run the place. That's very difficult. Um, but I mean, mainly because I'm OCD. I, uh, I'm sure it's easier for, for some folks. And like, and this is well, this is the thing that I'm also realizing is that um, I I always had an idea of training where it's like, all right, so. For you to actually be there pulling shots, you know, you have to pass this manual test. You got to be able to pull ten shots within half a gram, and you have to answer this question about, you know, there's all of these hoops and things to jump through to get to the point where you were you were amazing and perfect, and that's what we wanted on bar. And then you would get on bar, and you, to an extent, fall to pieces. Mm -hmm. It's a very different environment, um, and this kind of points to standardized testing not being a good way to analyze that. So. As far as how we've been executing in the shop so far, there's there's a healthy amount of like, all right, this is the introduction, these are the things that are important, this is the material, I want you to know this, and then just working with them a lot one-on-one. -on -one. But then the the training needs to progress into real-time environments from there. You can only do so much isolated, and then at some point, it's just, it's a matter of community oversight. So it's like, all right, you're not ready to be on this bar alone, yeah. but you're ready to be on it, you know, with this person over here. Yeah. You know, and then eventually you'll be ready to be on it from, you know, open until nine. Yeah. You know, and then it's, it's, just it's, them up, it's several steps. I mean, you need to get them into the, into the real waters as soon as possible. Cool. I guess what's also um, maybe different for some people is that they may be working in um, a business that has dedicated trainers or they could be a very small business where there's literally eight people working there. Um, how would you approach training from that perspective in terms of a very small bunch of people? Ecstatically. Oh man. <laughs> I love it. I mean that's because that's the situation we're in right now. And Just so we, how many staff have you got at the moment? Uh, on the espresso bar? Probably about seven or eight actually. I, mean, I think that's right if you count me. Yeah. Um, we do. About the same oh. as us as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah and it's I mean, I absolutely love it because the previously I was dealing with staffs of about twelve to twenty um, per per shop, and when it's when it's seven to eight, I get to work with everybody in a week. You know, if I'm if I'm trying to, so I have that ability to continuously touch base and see what's happening. And I mean, in my mind, that's fantastic. Uh, the the problem comes when you have to start expanding beyond that. I mean. Well, this is, I think, the perfect example of expanding beyond that, I guess, is the, the coffee collective in, in, in um, Copenhagen. I've been speaking with Klaus. Never heard bit. of them. Yeah, no, no, it's not a very But they went from, obviously, having Jägerswagada, their small little store, and a staff of, I don't know, make, let's say 12 people. And literally over the course of two to three weeks, when they started Torvaholina, I think their staff tripled in size. Yeah. So Klaus has literally said to me, you know, I used to know my baristas so well. I used to know their skill sets. I used to know where they needed work. And it's gone from there to quite difficult to manage that amount of people. So that, 
uh, growth that quickly must be quite hard to Because ulti- it's the people, ultimately. Yeah. And can oh, I ask you, oh. how comfortable are you? Okay, so... No, like, you can't work far. Ah. <laughs> so the... I knew when Handsome Coffee was opening. And a lot of people in specialty coffee, even if they didn't live in the States, knew when it was opening. And it would be fair to say that it was... There was a certain amount of a spotlight on you That's when you opened. That's the biggest thing that happened all year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, undoubtedly. So, like... Every shop, uh, like our shop has bad coffee goes out. And um, how comfortable... Never, never had that happen. No, it's happened. It happened in oh. 1990. No, so, so how comfortable are you with kind of... With like the, your, the, the standard deviation between quality and cup? And, and like, do you freak out if something's going wrong? And, oh, like, yeah. Because you're no, under a big I mean, spotlight. It, it, like it, we it, kind of opened as nobody and kind of built it up quietly and then grew in confidence as we got better. But you no, didn't it, have that it, chance. You it, were it, supposed to be brilliant from day it, one. It, dis- it's, it, dis- it keeps me awake at night. Mm. I, uh, and it's, it's been a very, it's, I mean, I, I've absolutely loved going through this process because, I mean, I came from, you know, a machine, you know, like those shops were filled with talented baristas. There was a structure there. There was a framework. We had standards in place, all this stuff. And when Handsome started, you know, that it was sort of my plate to be like, all right, so, you know, what are we doing for shots? What are we considering for drinks? What are we doing for brood? What, you know, what are all these things we want in place? And it's, we're doing 5,000 things at once. So it was, I, like, it, it sort of ripped apart my ability to, to white knuckle this thing into being exactly controlled in what I wanted. But the benefit was that I've, I've learned to trust a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've had instances where I've walked in and I've been like, ah, no, 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 don't serve that, you know, and like that sort of thing. But that's that whole, it's, it's really allowing me to embrace that constant gentle pressure because rather than, you know, just freak out on someone, it's, oh, that's just horribly wrong, it's yeah. gone. It's like, all right, you know, you need to realize that wasn't necessarily what we want. We're going to nudge you back towards this. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that the drinks are exactly what we want. But when they're not, it, it's, you have to live with it. It's puffy. Yeah. It, know, it becomes a cultural thing. Corrective yeah. measure and yeah, culture. That's I mean that's the biggest one right there. It's getting the right people and having them buy in to the standards that you want upheld. I think like Stephen Marcy always put it well. He's like he's saying that people will generally do what they're supposed to do. Like nobody goes, oh, I I intentionally won't do that. You know, if they're comfortable yeah. in their environments. And I think if you if you're pointing out what what the thing is you do, if something appears and it's not the thing, it doesn't go. That's that's it. I think that's the um, the hardest thing to, to establish. But the most important is it is it tough finding baristas in LA? Um, we we don't try baristas? to find baristas. We try to find people. That's <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> I'm serious. No, it's uh, like it's I I we do not look at all at people's coffee qualifications. It's because like when you look at those three areas of training, uh, I mean technique is the, it's the easiest. You know you can work with people on that. You can communicate a standard. You can walk them through the steps. They can develop that. You know, it's it's more so a matter of finding people that are engaged and interested in service. Uh, well, answer that question then. It's no, it's not. E- well, it it probably is easy. I just don't know how to do it. I uh, like for me, I've never, I've never been the person at the very front of the hiring process. So like learning how to go out there and try and attract people that. Are, are really interested in every person walking through that door feeling ecstatic about the service and the environment they receive. Um, that's, that's a very new thing for me. So it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy, but it hasn't been easy because I, I kind of don't know what I'm doing with regards to that. But we have, like, we have been very lucky. We've been very judicious at how we add staff. And the only time we've brought someone on is when, you know, we've talked to them where, like, there's just a feeling where it's like, wow, you know, you are a great fit. You know, you fit with the community, there's an ease of communication, they just sort of feel natural there, and then when, when that sort of chemistry is there, then everything else will, will sort of fall into place. We have a question through the wonders of mobile telephony. Um, this is from Paul Stack. How much time and effort does Mike put into customer interaction and customer service? Is it, is it as important as the coffee? Oof. I know when I say yes, people are gonna be upset, but yes. Um, I put as much effort in as I can. Like I'm, I'm still coming to grips with like, a, a big part of this talk for me was just trying to get people to talk about it because I don't know. I mean, a lot of these ideas, I'm, I'm trying to rewrite the way that I approach training with staff that has a much heavier focus 
on the service end of things. Like Handsome was founded, we're a hospitality company that happens to serve coffee. You know, we want that to be the thing that people walk away with. Uh, we don't we don't doubt that we can make absolutely amazing coffee, but there's uh, an increasingly large number of coffee bars that can make amazing coffee. Mm. You know, the thing that we feel we can really push forward and get some strides on is if we focus on that customer experience. Yeah. So I, I invest as much as I can, but I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. And that's where a lot of the time live on bar comes in. It's A, it's demonstration, and B, it's just being there to watch and, and see how those interactions occur and then slowly nudge people in and be like, Actually, they didn't. They didn't want you yeah. to ask them about that. I think, like, if I've if I've learned one lesson in the last three years, it's definitely that, like, y you guys will know, is like setting up a coffee bar. And I'm sure people out there will know is expensive, and it gets more expensive than you ever thought it would get. And um, things like you know, great espresso machines, great grinders, great coffee, you know, couches, walls, whatever, painters, everything, all that costs money. But like, the one thing that you can get for absolute, like, for nothing, is just being friendly to people and being nice to them. And that will drive your business so hard. Like I've had conversations with customers where they didn't like what we did or something wasn't good or they had a complaint and they've left happy and come back the next day with people. And it's just because you're nice to them and you accept them and you try to engage them. And, and if I'd learned that lesson earlier, it would have been made such a big difference, but it's, it's a free resource. It doesn't yeah. cost you anything. You, you were a jerk for the first three months, right? I was an yeah. ass. Well, I was a big deal back then. So kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I, I'm, I'm still amazed that we're sort of still in the hangover of the surly barista with terrible service. I still see that in so many places. And um, it's not until you go to a, a really good restaurant or a, a really good bar where you find impeccable service and you you sort of have this realization shit we we've got a lot of work to do still so it sort of upsets me a lot to see um we're still sort of fighting that um i don't know stereotype the, yeah stereotype that's been but, but we're driving it as well still as baristas i think um so it'll be great to see um people recognizing the fact that they are serving somebody you know and as soon as they get used to that idea and they start to enjoy that concept, then they'll become I, much better. I think, I think it's, it's a little different, though, in that, I mean, a lot of these restaurants and bars that we, we go to are like, oh, this is amazing, the service is here. It's not, an, it's not an accident. You know, the people that are at the heads of those establishments, they're, they're committed to hospitality. That's something that is you know, it's part of their genetic makeup. It's what they want to do. And those industries are just larger and more lucrative and more well-founded to the point where they're able to attract those people. I mean, there's just as many bars out there that just get this horrible service. Um, we, I, I feel like we're just getting to the point where we're realizing how far behind we are. And I think, I think we can attract those people and we can put that into the makeup where you start seeing more coffee bars that that experience and the, the overall feel is is just as important and we have those hospitality people um it's just it's hopefully just starting to happen now yeah. um you mentioned as well um stealing what's that stealing yes thievery what would you them. what would you like people to steal from you um my love for tides <laughs> uh I, I don't know. I, whatever I'm doing right, I guess. You know, like if you come into the coffee bar and you're like, oh, wow, his staff's doing great at this, you know, figure yeah. out how that happens and, and pluck it away. It's, it's very hard for me from, from my perspective to kick back and be like, dude, totally killing milk skills, man. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I don't really have, have that great of an ability at it. I mean, the one thing I would say, Steel, for me is the idea that, you know, don't just focus on technique. Uh, push, push into looking at all these other areas and and develop a an idea that training staff isn't just like a section of time that you have over here. You know, you're in it, you're training, and then outside of it, you know, no, we're getting work done. Yeah. Training is something that happens continuously yeah. all the time. It should, in some ways, never end, and it should be. It shouldn't be punishment. You know, it should be sort of a culture and a, a growth-inducing. Happy thing. Um, more specifically, as a roaster or a roastery, um, obviously you need to engage your staff in 
the coffees that you're roasting and serving and the coffees that are coming in and getting them knowledgeable and, and you know, getting them enthusiastic. Um, how do you guys go about um, training up staff with new coffees, new arrivals? For us, it's been, I mean, currently it's been pretty easy for the simple fact that we are, we're a very new roastery and like the, the model that we operate on is is a very trimmed down menu both in terms of drinks and in terms of coffee so we i don't think we've ever had more than five coffees at one point in time so when when a new coffee comes in it's like i don't have to do they're like it's a new coffee yeah you know, it's, it's exciting because you know we only had two coffees for the last three or four weeks um but i mean i i think one of the things that we do well that would relate to that is there's a there's a healthy amount of transparency you know, having the roastery right there attached to the coffee bar means, you know, if we're there cupping new samples and we're looking at, you know, six different lots from Guatemala and three from Ethiopia and we're trying to figure out what to buy, they can they can join that cupping. It's a huge advantage to have, yeah, the roaster literally three meters away from the, from yeah. the bar. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like cheating, which is sort of like stealing, so it's all in the it's same. It's all about cheating and yeah. stealing. Cheat, steal, screw around, we're all set. Well, speaking of stealing, one thing that I'd love to steal, which I probably will, and call it my idea, is um, your idea of how you uh, label your coffees. Yeah, that was totally my idea. It was actually mine. I, you, I, you stole it from me. Actually, actually, that was, uh, that was Chris, Chris Owens came up with that, and it's, it's worked really well. Um, so the, the idea, it's, uh, it's, it's well talked about in a, uh, another temper tantrum. Uh, you, can, you can find it online. Uh, gentleman over there, uh, we we broke our coffees down into two broad categories: uh, one being comfort and one being adventure. Um, with the main approach being that a lot of people are coming into the coffee bar and they're not necessarily you know you can you can look at a row of bags and one says late harvest winter melon on it, another says you know, New England leather, and you, you just it's it's all sort of a jumble. Um, but if you if you break it down into these two very nice, simple, easy to grasp categories, it, it makes it a much more appealing approach to people to be like, all right, so this is a traditional profile. You can expect, you know, essentially coffee flavored coffee. It's comfortable, it's easy, there's not gonna be anything too aggressive, uh, but it's gonna be delicious. Yeah. Uh, whereas this bag, this is, you know, you're dealing with some of the possibly the more fringe elements of specialty coffee. There's gonna be possibly brightness, you may get a floral quality, maybe there's a, a different aspect to the body. There's, there's something in here that you know, yeah. you may love or you, you may not love. And if you, um, if you don't love it, that's cool. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, it, it takes this somewhat mystical world of specialty coffee and it makes it a very easy dividing line for all the new people that are trying to get engaged with it. Because I think that's like our, it's, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty easy formula to appeal to this crowd that we have here, you know, like buy really nice coffees, roast them in a fashion that displays that, have proper extraction gear and all, all of that. And like, we know the route to impress specialty coffee people because it's what impresses us. What we need to figure out is how to impress other people. People mm -hmm. that have no idea, you know, what we're doing, you mm -hmm. know, and make it an easy, soft entryway for them to get into this world because they love coffee just as much as we do, I'm sure. Yeah. They just haven't had a chance to experience it yet. So when, when regular Billy comes in and walks up to the bar and, and you're saying, well, this is comfort and this is adventure, how have you been finding it? You, it's, it's actually, that's my favorite part of the menu description, you know, because we, it's a really quick menu. You know, people walk in, it's like, all right, you know, roaster, focused on coffee. We do espresso and milk and three, five, or yeah, three, five and 10 ounces. And then we have uh, two filter options, comfort and adventure. And instantly they go, you, know, you see this weird kind of creepy grin, you know. So. Do you find they, they move more towards comfort or more towards no, adventure? No, it's an absolute split. Really? It's, like there's not, uh, and, and this is the new people coming in. Yeah. Um, hey, granted, we, maybe we, we do live in the arts district, so may, maybe we have the more adventurous <laughs> folks. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a healthy, it's a healthy divide down the middle where people come in, and they'll change from day to day. Like, I'm feeling adventurous today. You know, and they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll go with a coffee and then, like it's it's a it's a slow step because at first you know yeah comfort adventure today comfort Los Naranjos adventures Route yeah. Zero, you know those names are lost on them the first time yeah. but the second time they come back in they're like 
Well, that adventure, that's a different adventure coffee. <laughs> There's you know, more adventures? Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's choose your own. Yeah, it's, uh, but it's like, it's not, it ha I was afraid that it might work as a stop. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, I'm a comfort person. Oh, I'm an adventure person. And, you know, they're... It's a mood thing as well, more than anything. Yeah, it's, well, it's mood, but it also, it's just a first step. You know, they get past comfort and adventure. Well, they'll hold on to those categories. They start actually approaching the individual farms and the, the mm. distinctions between them. So it's, yeah. it's been really good. I think it's We've got some questions in the audience. I just got a text message from David, so I'll get him to ask it himself. <laughs> I feel like I'm stepping back just a little bit. Um, but I'm going to step back, uh, and that's uh, back to the commentary about staffing. And one of the things that I think you, you touched on in the talk, and I think it's a really important part, is uh, how do we attract, keep, and pay? Pay being really yeah. the key here. A staff that is actually trained and knowledgeable and has the capacity to provide that. You talked about high-end restaurants. You know, the people, the captains in high-end restaurants, they're making real money, uh, and they can imagine a lifetime uh, doing that. I'm not sure how many baristas in this world that we have right now could actually afford to imagine that yeah. life. That's a, that's a good question, and to some extent, the answer is not what you want. Um, I, I don't believe, certainly at this point in time, that it's possible which is part of what makes coming up with an engaging training program that much more important. Um, there's a, a really great book by a guy named Daniel Pink. It's called Drive. And it, it looks at the different motivators for why we do things. Um, you know, there's the classic motivation of I need food, I need shelter, I find them. And then there's the sort of second motivator, which is carrot and stick. You know, do this, you get a carrot, do this, I'll hit you with a stick. Some people, both of those are pluses, but um, there's a <laughs> there's a third there's a third there's a third motivating concept that's sort of coming out there, which is the idea of autonomy and mastery of craft, uh, and I think this is what has been a big part of the fuel that specialty coffee has had. You know, people they're not getting. I mean, we have we have a lawyer. A woman that walked away from you know, a six-figure job to come be a, a barista. You know, I've, I've had architects, I've had engineers. These people are not doing it for the long-term lucrative money. They're doing it for the, the sheer love of the act. Maybe they already have money, though. No, they do. <laughs> they absolutely do. And uh, that, that does afford them some luxury. But there's also a number of people that don't have money that could make significantly more waiting tables or doing any number of other jobs. Um, I don't think that, like, you can say, yes, we need to raise prices. We absolutely do. But that's not going to be an overnight battle that's going to result in baristas making $60,000 a year. Uh, you can say we need to pay them more and trim, just take it out of the overhead. And yes, we can do that. Um, we do our best to offer a very competitive wage. Uh, you need to create an environment for the shop that lets people know they're walking into something different and therefore increases their likelihood to reward that with, with extra tips. Um, you need all of these things to come together to try and raise the wage, but I think more than any of that, our key to retention, well, first off, we have to accept the fact that no one, no one right now is going to be a lifetime barista and maintain a family of four. It's just not a feasible reality. Um, they can find a way to do it and sustain themselves for a good long time in a very solid position, but more than the monetary rewards, we need to find a way to make the job emotionally rewarding and an enjoyable thing to hold them for as long as we can. Uh, is it reasonable to expect someone to stay and be a barista for 30 years? No. Can you create a work environment that makes it a rewarding profession for them for four to eight years? I think it's possible if you push forward uh, and make your environment one that offers continual opportunity for growth and they don't feel like, all right, I've learned everything I can about this, I'm done. You know, I'm going to go start craft brewing or, you know, whatever their next hop-off point is. Any more questions from the audience? Yes. I'd like to step back also in terms of staffing and also training, but I want to put you in my shoes and get your opinion in terms of what you would do if you were me. 
I opened up a coffee shop in Lusaka, Zambia, about 18 months ago. And all of my staff come from a local women's group, and I have great staff. And we put them through a crazy training program. And these ladies are very anal in terms of the coffee that comes out. And they take a lot of you know, passion in it. But they don't drink coffee. And when we have barista competitions across the city, and I ask, maybe 10% drink coffee. Zambia is a tea-drinking nation, and coffee is very new. How would you get them into the coffee culture? How would you introduce that? I mean, it's a, it's a challenge that I have, and I think you'd agree it's an interesting one. I, 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 that sounds really uh, intriguing to me. I think it's 100% possible to serve really great coffee all day long and not drink it. I don't know. Is that no. contentious? I, I, no way. I, I, yeah. I, I, okay, I think, okay, not <laughs> if everybody didn't drink coffee, but I think if you were, or you were running a bar and you were tasting the coffee, you could, in theory... I'm, not, I'm sure it's not, it's not an ideal scenario. I'm not recommending it. But I still think that you could serve good coffee all day if nobody else touched it. I, I think it would be incredibly difficult. Um, I, and, but, I mean, this is just my experience. Uh, like the, I, I could give someone the tools and the standards and the specs to you know, pull a shot at an 18-gram dose, 28-gram beverage weight, 25-second extraction time, and just shift those numbers and they would probably make better coffee than, like, if they did that and they managed to be consistent in the preparation, they would make better coffee than probably 90% of the coffee bars in your average city. But would it always be great coffee all day long? Absolutely not. not. No, I'm not, like, you wouldn't, I'm not saying, talking about, like, reaching new heights, but you could, you could create a coffee shop where we would go for coffee for passing shots hitting up. That's pretty good. That could be done. It's a, a really <laughs> tough situation, to I'm be honest. I mean, I, I would never hire anybody who didn't drink coffee. It's just, just doesn't make uh, an ounce of sense to me. But you're obviously in a very unique situation. So the answer is really tough, actually, because I think what's the, one of the most important things as baristas and something that we're not doing enough of is tasting, tasting coffee. We get distracted by so many other stuff things in coffee but not the actual tasting element so I don't know what to do to help <laughs> I, I'm sort of in that same boat I mean I and it's funny because when you asked that like I immediately thought you know this sounds like a question for Colin <laughs> he's right there for it. you I think the trick is to bring a very charming Irishman down there and to have him slowly work away at their defenses until all of a sudden you know they're knocking back doubles like but, but like why aren't no they tomorrow. why don't they drink coffee So it's sort of simply a case of them not really enjoying it? You need I to get better coffee more, then. I think it's more cultural. I mean, you have, you definitely have, and, th and that's, that's the interesting thing is there's so many different cultures in the world that have their deeply ingrained issues with what they will and won't consume. Uh, and coffee definitely has a place on either side of that fence in, in several different parts of the world. Um, in the one, I mean, like when I, I, w I was at uh, the National Barista Competition in Kenya, one year and it was it was shocking because there was actually a number of very like uh dormans does a, a pretty darn good job with their coffee bars out there but it's a tea drinking nation you know like the number of people that actively really seek out and enjoy specialty coffee there it's it's relatively small um but i mean even in that environment they were able to execute at a very high level um my guess is you can probably simply through the the crafts uh, aspect of it and the mastery of that get them to go much further than you can rapidly with the the tasting side but you definitely need to learn about both to some extent because to be really excited about a coffee that you're sharing with someone you you sort of need to know you know what it tastes like and to be excited about how it tastes but yeah. it's sorry don't it's hire any more people that don't drink coffee but at the same time don't sack your existing staff okay <laughs> yeah. we don't want to put anyone out of a job um, on your conscience. <laughs> okay, we got any more questions very quickly? Yeah. Hi, guys. I'm really nervous right now. <laughs> Get him. So uh, the four of us have all been involved in both training and opening shops. And I guess uh, to some extent we all sort of 
take pride in the first few days and try to show off as much as our idea and concept as possible. But at the same time, when you're training new baristas, there's always this period of time where you don't really know where it's going and how long they need to get to that point where you trust them alone in service. Never, never had that. Never, <laughs> never let that happen. Um, what do you guys, what are your thoughts on, because uh, at least from my training perspective, we always did a huge bulk of training first, then a few weeks where we let them work with other baristas and then they take some sort of standardized tests. Um, but after that as well, I always felt the first six months or so was, you know, they should have more follow-up in those months. But we can't afford that. We would have to put people in bar earlier than they were ready, maybe. So what are you guys, what are your thoughts on, on new staff the first few days you let them be your shop, especially when it's a new shop? I, th I think they ha that's the difficulty is that, like, it would be great to have them, you know, go off to Barista land for three months before they came and worked in the shop, but that's, it's not financially viable. And for us, it's... Um, there's always a stage where they have to work with somebody. Um, and we try to make that as automated as possible in terms of do this for this much time or you know, get this much, in, this much coffee, get this much out in this much time. And that takes the pressure off them because telling somebody, make this taste good, is a very difficult thing to do because they don't have any confidence. They feel like they can't say what they think. But um, I think uh, the hardest part, and maybe my staff will disagree when they hear me saying it, but. I think it's very important to be really cool with the making mistakes and make it a discursive process. Uh, because I've worked in places where people will hit the roof if somebody makes a mistake. And then the next day, if somebody, if something's going wrong or they don't understand something, there is no chance they're going to come and ask you. So I think that has been the, the single thing that I think has helped us is just being really discursive and cool with mistakes. And yeah, that was wrong. And this is why it was wrong. And talk through it and then because when they make mistakes they're more likely to come to you and ask you and I think um, nobody wants to look like a fool on a bar and unfortunately they keep it to themselves so I don't know you guys yeah um, uh, I, I, it's a really tough situation I agree um, I guess if you have a very strong team of staff already uh, with really good systems um, and we're potentially in a situation where they don't even taste coffee then you can sort of rely on the setup that you have already to d deliver a product that's of a certain standard. And I think that hopefully you also have a, a, a barista who is extremely charming, uh, is friendly, and sort of ticks off all of those other boxes to sort of help them through a little bit that stage of, of learning. I, so like I'm, I'm actually still there. I mean, we opened about four months ago. Um, we we cheated a little bit, you know. We had a sort of a backdoor coffee bar that we we're cultivating staff in um, well ahead of time. But I mean, I previously like I've, I've been in situations where the the training program was was almost diabolically evil in the amount of time and the standards that were expected for people to achieve before they got on bar. But still, by the time they got on bar, they still weren't ready to be on bar um, so much it's it's really reformed my opinion to the point where I think you know you've got those first first couple days first two or three training sessions where you know ideally those happen either after close or before open or if you have a training machine you know just somewhere in back where it's like all right so these are the things that are important you want to watch this you want to watch this you want to watch this these are the ideas you know we're just going to keep going through those we're going to fumble through the the basics right now and then, you know, after two to three sessions of just doing that, then it gets to the point where it's like, all right, let's, uh, you know, the bar is open. It's a little slow right now. We're going to, we're just going to pull some shots. You know, this next person comes in. All right, you're dialed in. You're going to take that person. And I'm going to be right here. Don't worry. You're fine. You know, it's like, it's, it's a slow sort of water wing approach. You know, you just slowly wait out there and you, you offer support as often as you can, but so much of applicable learning has to happen in a real environment anyways that all of these, all this time offstage is just really, you know, it's like if you, it, training without a real environment can also be to some extent counterproductive. You know, it's if you, you know, it's like I think Bruce Lee said it, you know, if you train lazy, you fight lazy. You know, you get people that they have time to train when it's not a real environment and they're like, 
you know, like they. <laughs> I like that move. It's fine. Um, they, you know, they, they don't learn the speed and the reality and the multitasking that is actually just as crucial. Because I mean, when it comes down to it, pulling a good shot's not rocket science. You know, it's not. Actually, it's incredibly difficult. It takes a lot of consultation from high-end barista trainers. Uh, it, no, it's not difficult. The thing that's difficult is pulling that shot while you're getting the next order, while you're figuring out if you need to go bust that table, while you're dealing with the fact that the register crashed, while you're dealing with all these other things. That's difficult, and that requires so much more training and is so much more difficult to actually train. So the sooner you get them into that situation, um, focusing on those skills that are more interesting and difficult to develop, the better. I mean, it's not really, I mean, in my situation, it's not really a matter of, of money. It's not, this isn't the training that's going to cost you anything aside from your own time. You know, the, the thing that's expensive is the fact that you have to be there. You have to watch people. You have to work with them. And you can't, you can't give them a packet of information and be like, okay, come back tomorrow and, you know, be a great barista. You, I mean, there's no, there's no other option to get that level of success aside from actually being there and trying to develop it yourself or ultimately cultivating a staff that can do that. You know, and granted, the earlier on that is, the more difficult it is. But also, you know, if you're stupid enough to start up a business, you realize you just gave your life away and you're going to be there all day, every day for a while, no matter what. Question? So in the world that we're living in right now, as we continue to pay more and more for coffee, and we need to make more money in order to do it, you know, so that we can actually have a viable business. You've talked about hospitality. Do you think that we need to link hospitality to the price point and the perceived value of, of the product that we sell in our cafes? Or do you think coffee can become something akin to other products in the hospitality industries where perceived value is attached simply to a higher, higher price point? So you walk into a place and you automatically go, oh, that, that glass of wine is $20. It must be great. And you don't have to talk about it. You don't have to explain it. There's just this perceived value that because of the price, it must be good. Or do you think that coffee doesn't have that potential at this point? Because this is the debate we're having. Is like, Do we have to increase service and hospitality and the customer experience to achieve that value? Or can we just set a higher price point and the customer will automatically go, oh, it must be good because it's expensive? I want you to try that out and let me know, because I am so curious. Yeah. So it's, well, I mean, we, we arguably, we're, we're at the front end of pricing um, in... How much is a cup of coffee when I go to your place? Uh, I wouldn't pay, obviously, but... <laughs> uh, for, $4 for a, a standard drip. Um, we, we don't necessarily float on market um, for our filter coffee and we we're not at a point where we're bringing in crazy expensive lots that we're brewing so it's been pretty much standard on that espressos three uh three ounce and five ounce drinks are four and then ten ounce drinks are are five bargain um and even that like that's not that's i mean that's not allowing us to you know have people signing that lease on the new hummer they're they're, they're looking to drive um but it's uh I mean, it's it's decent. I think. I think there are there are there are examples out there already. I mean, there's there's n numerous times where I've heard of a coffee bar being like, well, I mean, you have that you've got that great story, you know, where like you tried to sell the one coffee and then you up the price five dollars the next day and it like went oh, it flat just out. Disappeared, yeah. The the best one I heard was um, Gwilym Davies when he he had a, a coffee cart, and people were coming and asking for a dry cappuccino. And he's like, oh, dry cappuccino, I don't want to make them. And somebody said, well, just charge them a fortune. He went, okay. So next day, cappuccino was whatever, £2.50, and dry cappuccino was like £7 or something stupid. And he got so many requests for the dry <laughs> He was like, that's not what I meant, you know? And I kind of, we've done the same, got expensive lots, and then people go, oh, I love that one, you know? And it's like, um, it's interesting, you know? But I mean, it, the pricing is a different. We got a reporter called last Friday, and she was saying, so well, we were looking at prices and uh, your, your coffees are the same price as the, the guys in the main street. And I was like, okay. And she's like, but they're half the size. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, so that means they're, like, they're double the price. So I was like, yeah. And she goes, that's really expensive. And I was like, yeah. And like, she was about to do it, I think, like, 
a hatchet job at us and it just talked it through it was really positive and I think not apologising for that is a huge yeah. thing like we, have, we always say don't apologise just say yeah you know that's, that's the way it is and this is why and it's cool and um, we were very busy the day that came out and it's, it's a good thing you shouldn't be afraid of it yeah um, I mean the, a huge part of all of this for what we're trying to do is a, a sense of ownership and identity I mean we we're, we're in a really easily you know targeted position you know we we don't offer decaf we don't offer alternative milks we have no sweeteners um we're not we're not distinctly affordable in any way shape or form um there's a lot of reasons for people to be upset about it but if you turn it around and you simply own that and you're confident about it and you know you're not trying to create arguments all the way along then that's there, there develops this, this sense of, well, you know, it works for a lot of people and there, it develops a curiosity and they're interested. And if they're not interested, that's fine. There's so many places that work for them. And the, the thing that I've been so incredibly happy about is that because we've, like, we talk about hospitality from the get-go with anybody that walks through the door and how that customer experience is absolutely important for our staff to, to, ab to have right here. Um, the number of people we've had that have come in and been like, yeah, this menu just doesn't work for me. But you guys are so nice. <laughs> you know, and then they go and they tell two or three of their friends and, and they come in and they'll come in with them and just get a glass of water. Yeah. You know, like that level, I, like it, the, the focus that seems to be, and it's easy to say a focus because I, I live in the little bubble where it's a focus um, on hospitality there's so much value to be reaped from that that will let us get over a lot of these hurdles, you know, from not offering things we don't want to offer to being able to charge prices that we want to charge. Um, but we have, we have to be nice to people to do it. Like, well said. Like really nice. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Phillips.